If you enjoy the show, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcast. It helps us tremendously in getting more exposure and new listeners. If there's anyone you know who may enjoy the show, be sure to tell them about us as well. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Cyber sources may not be suitable for some listeners. The show contains strong language, mature content, and graphic details. Listener discretion is advised. How's your recovery going? Well, I'm learning how to relearning how to walk in PT, and uh, honestly, I'm a little bit terrified because I'm feeling like the exact same sensation that I was feeling before the surgery when I would have to like pop my hip and all that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm just worried that it's not like entirely fixed, and I'm gonna have to go through this whole process again. But if we go. By a measure of my facial expressions from last night, I'm on fucking cloud nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your eyes were special. <laughs> so was your voice. I, was, I am just super happy that the pain medication actually works because it's a different kind of pain at this point in the recovery process. Yeah. And well, yeah, no, I, I was fucking gone. I was just like, I'm just chilling. This is fucking wonderful. <laughs> Did you talk with the surgeon about your hip popping still? Yeah, um, he and his, I think it was like a nurse practitioner or assistant or someone assured me that the probability of the same injury happening again is virtually zero, but I'm still like nervous overall though. Because like the few times that I have felt it, my immediate reaction was to try and like free the joint like I used to, so to say. But, like, there's nothing catching or getting stiff, so I don't, I don't know, maybe, like, phantom sensation or something. It might just, you know, be part of the healing process, so, I don't know, just give it time. You've got, what, like, eight weeks left until you're pretty much done? Yeah, it's like seven or eight, something like that. I, don't know, I have a feeling I'm going to be in PT a little bit longer than I anticipated, and I say that because I literally just scheduled another seven weeks the other day. What? Yeah, seven more weeks of PT. Oh, why? Um, oh, like that's just I'm I'm only like halfway done. Oh, I see, I see. Because yeah, I like I went from no weight to twenty five percent weight to fifty percent weight to one crutch to no crutch, and now I actually have to work on being able to lift the leg, build up strength. Um. And then, like, not have any pain or discomfort in, like, various range of motion movements, all that fun stuff. Meh, you'll be okay. And, uh... I, dude, I fucking better be, because there is, there is, like, a lot of questions I have. I paid three grand. I had to put three grand down before they would even do the surgery. Mm-hmm. And they still haven't processed it under my insurance. And I've already hit my deductible. So, somebody owes me $3,000. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I could really use that fucking money right about now. Because <laughs> short-term disability is not covering my bills. Oh, God. <sighs> All right. Well, uh, you are over there refusing to rest up and heal properly. I will go ahead hey. and... 
my my yeah, my yeah. prognosis is too tolerance. I can walk and move around too tolerance. Oh my god. And then when I when I feel a little like, ooh, okay, that felt weird, I go and watch TV for like four hours. <laughs> yeah, this is God punishing you. So I will go ahead and introduce our lovely listeners to this week's episode. So welcome back everyone. If you didn't already know, I'm Charlie. That's Shelby, and we are back with some more gruesome tales of days past. Oh yeah, I'm putting this one near the top of the list for sure. Yeah, same. I won't really beat around the bush with this one. We are covering the story of Andrew Kehoe, uh, a Michigan man who is dubbed as America's first mass murderer. If you've heard of him before, you pretty much, I'm sure, obviously know what he did. But if not, uh, buckle up, Buttercup, because it is tragic. Oh yeah, and I, I, I don't know, but it, yeah, I just, I got, I got nothing. But what I do know and think is kind of funny is that I actually added Kehoe to the list of like potential topics like four months ago, and like completely forgot about him. Came across him again. I was like, oh, this would be a good story to write about. <laughs> Yeah, I remember you like, were telling me you like happened across the book and that you had written him down, but you never got around to really looking into him. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I don't know. It's It's been an interest. I don't even know how long I've been off work. Four weeks now, I think. Something, Something like, like that. that. But anyways, so the name of the book that we will mostly be referencing is uh, Maniac, The Bath School Disaster and the Birth of the Modern Mass Killer. By another returning author, Harold Schechter. Oh, yeah. He was the guy who wrote the Ed Gein book, too, right? Yes. Same exact guy. And uh, just like Ryan Green, he has a whole-ass catalog of books that I was previously unaware of. So we're definitely going to be using his writings as future topic sources. And as always, if you're looking for any other source that we used, check down in the episode description. Everything's available down there. All right. Let's just... uh... Jump right on in, head first and blindfolded, as you would say. I love it. Never look where you jump, just go. (laughs) (laughs) So Kehoe's family starts, at least like the history that we have, starts all the way back in 1847 um, with his grandfather immigrating to the U.S. from Ireland during the Great Famine. He left his family to build a life here, and he would send for them later. In 1850, his eldest son, Philip, made the journey with the rest of the family following in 1851. Philip, who is Andrew Kehoe's father, would leave his family in 1855 at the age of 22, settling in Lenawee County in Michigan. He would go on to marry his first wife, a woman named Mary Malone, in 1858. The couple would have two children, both daughters. Unfortunately, Mary passed away just two and a half years into the marriage, leaving Lydia and Mary, those are the daughters' names, um, alone in Philip's care. Love, uh, you know, would still end up finding Philip, though, because uh, after Mary's death, he would remarry in 1864 to another Mary, a Mary McGovern. Yeah, he really has a thing for women named Mary, apparently. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I'm getting, like, fucking Ron Swanson vibes. Like, where he, all of his wives were named Tammy. I think his mom was named Tammy, too. Like, Jesus, talk about a fucking Oedipus complex or something. I know. That's so creepy. <laughs> my, um, 
my parents. So my dad is a junior, so he has the same name as his father, obviously. And he married my mom, who has the same name as his mother. So it's two I, sets I could of never, people I, with the I could, same names in the family. I could fucking never. <laughs> never, forever, creepy? never. Like, any time I come across the shortened or, like, regular version of my mom's name, nope, get the fuck away. I don't want to know you. We are not friends. I don't want to be friends. You don't exist. Just get away. It's not Jessica, right? No, 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 no. Okay. I hate Jessica. Cindy. What is it? Cindy. Oh, I hate that or name, Cindy. too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, aside from the fact it's just a terrible name. <laughs> okay. Um, yes. So. But also, actually, sorry. But quick, quick backtrack. Um, Jessica, Jesse, if you hear this, get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. So. Uh, yeah. His family had some duplication of names going on. And uh, anyways... Carbon copies. Huh? Carbon copies. Yes. Philip's uh, marriage to McGovern would uh, last a lot longer than his marriage to the other Mary, uh, who died, sadly. Um, But Mary McGovern, his second wife, uh, she passed away in 1890 at the age of 55, leaving nine other children in Philip's care. That's just your favorite thing. It is. Every time I read this, I'm like, ooh. Uh, we got, what, what was one of them? It was like 11 or 14. Yes. A back. <laughs> so let's see. We got nine children. That puts the total head count at 11. How does one man raise 11 children? I mean, I feel like at this point, they're pretty much well grown up. So like, they're, at least there's that. Oh, yeah, that's true. I didn't take the timeline into account. Okay, still ridiculous that you pushed out nine humans. No, no. <laughs> uh, everybody already knows my thoughts on that, so I won't continue. But if you don't, I invite you to listen to prior episodes. Fuck them kids. Charlie! Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Calm down. You made a joke saying you were going to put your firstborn up for adoption if it's a girl. So don't even try to come for me. <laughs> Oh shit! All right, but actually, and as as much as we like to talk bad about kids in general, Charlie and I are actually both very good with children. I know. I actually love kids. I just don't want them inside my body. <laughs> yeah, and I want like twelve. Ugh. One for every zodiac. It's fine. Oh god. There's twelve chances to get it right, but I'm, if the first one's a girl, I'm telling you. Oh, all right. <laughs> oh, okay. But are, back- are, actually, sorry, sorry. One last quick question. What? Are we becoming a toxic podcast? Haven't we been toxic to begin with? <laughs> okay, cool. According to whatever the girl with her head in the sand, literally. Um, okay. I have no idea what you're talking about. The crazy Arizona person. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. That's right. Um. But back to the nine kids, six of them were girls, three were boys, and among them was Andrew Kehoe. Yep. Uh, born on February 1st, 1872, Andrew Philip Kehoe would go on to be dubbed, quote, the world's worst demon, end quote. 
uh, I believe he was the first of the three boys as well, because there me- there was mention that he was quote the long uh, the long sought male heir end quote of the family. Yeah, that's probably what it was. Sick. Look at me deducing information. Wow, that was really hard. <laughs> I know. I know. Especially because the narco today is starting to kick in. <laughs> oh God. Hey, in my defense, it is quite painful to be walking without crutches. I am I am on full weight bearing, too tolerance, and it fucking hurts. I wasn't making fun of you. Okay, I just want I just want to clarify. But I'll get make extra fun of you stupid. Now. Whatever. Anyways, Andrew grew up in the age of electricity when Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla were, you know, intellectually duking it out. You mean Thomas Edison was running around stealing other people's ideas? He wasn't I mean, yeah. intellectually duking it out with anybody. Oh, uh, can you just? Sorry, I just had a dig. I hate him. <laughs> anyway, I, I feel that. I am 100% Team Tesla, and we're going to... I think I said it many weeks ago. We are going to do an episode about him, because I just... I fucking love him. Um, but anyways, from a young age, Andrew had, you know, a penchant for mechanics and was just generally fascinated by electricity. So much so, in fact, that he would build all kinds of little contraptions and electrical devices that the family would end up using on the farm. And if you ask the neighbors of the Kehoes... They would describe Andrew as having, quote, a proclivity for being alone, lost in his thoughts, isolated, and inward in spirit, end quote. I wonder if that has anything to do with his upbringing. I know much of his childhood is up for speculation, but the book does mention that, you know, being the male heir, as you said earlier, may have had some sort of significant influence on him. I do know that he had a heavily inflated sense of self-importance, so maybe he was the product of constantly being told he's the greatest or something like that, or it could have been abuse. Yeah, probably go with that, but (laughs) you never know with these kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, I almost want to say it was likely the former, but I, I don't know. Who knows? As far as his isolated personality, though... There are some records that claim he attended a local farmer's club. Uh, I guess that was this, like this little monthly get-together for like farming communities since neighbors never really got to know each other because, you know, they just they lived like fucking miles apart. Um, and apparently Andrew performed in uh, some of the plays or dialogues that they would do in this little farmer's club. Oh, that's so cute. I know, right? Like he wasn't. Just He wasn't always a complete fucking psycho. And I know you'd mentioned it before, but to keep on with the timeline, um, Andrew was 18 when uh, his mother, his, his mother, Jesus, his mother, Mary McGovern, had passed away. And he would end up staying with his father until he would, until he, being his father, Philip, uh, would marry again in 1898. Damn. So, yeah, yeah. Third time's a charm, right? So shortly after Philip's third marriage, uh, this time to a woman named Frances Murphy, Andrew finally decided to leave home. Um, From the little records that are available, um, Andrew lived in Ann Arbor working as a dairyman in the uh, 1900. And there's some evidence suggesting that he enrolled in college at Michigan State Agricultural College in East Lansing. 
He would eventually make his way to Iowa working as a lineman, you know, fixing electrical wire, and then spent time in uh, St. Louis. And by 1910, he was reportedly back in uh, Lenawee County, living with his father and stepmother, working as a farm laborer. And didn't his father have yet another child during that time? It was like in 1902 or something, the 69-year-old had another kid, this time a daughter that was named Irene. Yeah, so honestly, like I know a lot about reproductive anatomy and stuff like that, but I did not know you could still knock someone up when you're well into your 60s or beyond. Like, that's fucking What? Yeah. Like, I, I know I know that men are, like, pretty fertile their entire lives, whereas, like, women have a clock, so to say. Yeah. But, like, that, like decreased sperm count, stuff like, like, you can, you still knock shit out when you're 69? You can. Jesus Christ. Yeah. You sure can. I mean, yeah, there's going to be some dudes who get infertile with age or whatever, but no, for the most part, yeah. Hmm. Pretty much go until you die. Women's bodies are like, mm, no, thank you. We've dealt with this for long enough. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, actually, um, so did you read the part about how he allegedly killed Irene's cat? Allegedly? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm kind of bummed because there's nothing more than a single sentence on it. And there was also the incident where their stove exploded. Um which engulfed his stepmother in flames while he just, quote, stood there and watched her burn for a while, end quote. Uh, He did, you know, out of the kindness of his heart, he did eventually throw some water on her, but that only exacerbated the fire since uh, you are not supposed to throw water on an oil fire because it'll just spread. And it ended up causing her to burn to death. Oh, Jesus. And to be fair, you know, maybe it wasn't commonly known that you don't throw water on a grease fire, but I don't, I don't want to chalk that up as a horrible accident. That's just sounds like a little mm, to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Cause like at this point in history, like I don't know what like kitchen safety standards did or did not exist. So I, like, all, all I do know is it was pretty fucking brutal. Um, there is a report I found that reads, quote, the burning oil spread over her body, liquefying what little skin she had left, end quote. Like, ugh. Mm. I can't even imagine going through something like that either. Like, I am highly uncomfortable just thinking about it. I think the events following that are actually a little bit more disturbing. They did not have a phone at the house. And the nearest telephone was at a neighbor's who lived down the road. So Andrew went there and asked um, the owner, one of the owners, Hetty McMurphy, or Hetty Murphy, sorry, (laughs) Hetty Murphy to call uh, Dr. Tuttle. What a fun name. Uh, When she asked if someone was sick, he just calmly said, calmly, quote, no, Fanny got burned. And the worst part of all of it was that she hadn't even yet died from the burns. She was just cooked to the bone and then died hours later. All right. Yeah, this is the part where I'm out. I don't like this fucking story anymore. Yeah, I'm not a fan of it either. Um, But it lays some important groundwork for the events to come. So quick shift into a much lighter part. On May 14th, 1912, 
40-year-old Andrew married Ellen Agnes Price, who was nicknamed Nellie. Uh, I think this is pretty insignificant to the overall story, but I got a laugh out of it. So there was a new church built in town, and to help offset some of the costs, donations were solicited from the congregates, because why wouldn't they be? When the uh, parish priest showed up to the Kehoe residence, $400 was requested of them. <laughs> Bold. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a lot of money. Andrew, good for him, flatly said no and ordered the priest off of his property. And he possibly threatened him with violence as well. <laughs> Jesus Christ, talk about a one-way ticket to hell. Like, shame on him! Like, <laughs> how dare he not contribute to the facilitation of the construction supported by the congregating congregation? Are you done? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, quick turn back to sadness. So, Andrew's dad passed away in 1915, and then Nellie's uncle, the one who had cared for her when they came to America, ended up passing away in 1917. Andrew was quick to take on uh, her uncle's property while trying to swiftly rid himself of the Kehoe farmstead. And two years later, the Allens, um, one of the neighbors of the Kehoes, would end up buying the land, um, specifically the Kehoe land. Yeah, so the Allens buy Kehoe's old property, and, you know, Andrew is just acting like a psycho. He had a bunch of firewood that was worth like $40 or so that he just vehemently refused to let the Allens have. He was adamant about finding a buyer. I'm kind of... For firewood. I'm kind of on his... Trees are hard to come by. We oh. have not become super industrialized yet. Trees do not exist. Oh trees God. only exist when you plant them. What a douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> and aside from that... um little tiff the couple would end up becoming a rather friendly part of the neighborhood you know they were liked by those around them and although they were liked some of them commented on there just being something about him about andrew you could be thick as thieves but there was still like this detached distant feeling they didn't consciously notice it at the time but there really was something sinister and cruel about him and arguably sadistic. And this is where we get into the horror of the story of Andrew Kehoe. Yep. So as was mentioned already, the neighbors did like him and his wife to an extent. Um, he was highly intelligent, but he did have a bit of a short fuse. He would often grow impatient and angry with people that disagreed with him. And while it wouldn't be cast until much later, he would come to be known as, like, an injustice collector. Um, you know, someone who would hold grudges for a long time and, you know, would never forget those who slighted him. And this is where the story turns to some big changes across the U.S., um, in, like, in general. So schools were changing from, like, one-room buildings to multiple rooms able to house many more students. And among these new schools was the Bath Consolidated School. A man by the name of Emery... I'm, I don't know how to actually say his name. Hyuk. Yeah, I was going to say his last name is Goofy's Laugh. It's Emery Hyuk. Um, so yeah, Emery Hyuk was uh, elected as the board superintendent in April of 1922. And he would go on to perform quite well in the position. He was the type that was self-assured and had no qualms with exercising his authority. And his success proved incredibly beneficial for the school as well, because, thanks to his work, 
the school was officially accredited, making it eligible for state and federal funding. Well, the school may have been doing well, but it put Kehoe further into financial strain. So being the type that never really farmed, he spent nearly all of his time building and tinkering. Um, he was the type that if his shirt got a little bit dirty, he would go and change it. I'm kind so of because way. of that, he never really tended to crops. He would just build and tinker, trying to find shortcuts around actually caring for the land, um, but always came up empty-handed. With the new school, there was an additional tax of $12.26 applied for every $1,000 worth of property value. $12! <laughs> It's just so funny to see like how far we've inflated since then. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um so for Kehoe, this additional tax amounted to about $150 per year. So what did Kehoe decide to do? He ran for a spot on the board so he could have some control over what they were doing. Smart man. Surely enough, though, in July 1924, he won by majority vote and became the new treasurer. Mm. Good for him. In this new position, his frugality shone brightest. He immediately cut people's salaries, argued in favor of competitive bidding rather than nepotism for the busing contracts, and essentially went to war against Emery. Um... Since Kehoe was basically in charge of the money, being the treasurer, Emery would only receive half of the $200 he was eligible for when his annual raise came up. Uh, This one's super petty, but it made me chuckle. (laughs) When it was time to pay everyone, Kehoe conveniently forgot to pay Emery nearly every pay period. That's fantastic. This fucking dude's over there like, I still do not like you, therefore no money for you. Go cry about it. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) And Kehoe would find himself in another position of power when the town clerk passed away and he was asked to fill her spot for the remaining year that she had left. Yep. Um, And he would go on to use that position to exert some control as well. Like, I'm honestly not in that much disagreement with his methods. Like... He was frugal and, like, obviously concerned about finances. And, you know, if you can make something run well and for a low cost, I personally feel that should ultimately be the goal. I mean, yeah, but don't cripple the finances to a point that you're barely scraping by. No, 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 like, I I agree with that. But, like, also don't just, like, spend, 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 spend. Like, keep costs to a minimum and have some cash in the bank for random things that pop up here and there. Like, oh, no, um... We our water heater broke. Like okay, we that that's a necessity. Let's go get a new one. Right. Um. So yeah, Kehoe, at this point in the story, is now the treasurer and the town clerk, and he would also go on to become the school's unofficial handyman after taking care of a bee nest problem that they had in the winter of 1925. And because of this unofficial position. He was granted unfettered access to the school at pretty much any time. Quote, he became almost as much of a fixture around the school premises as the janitor, doing electrical repairs, plumbing, and tiling, and familiarizing himself with every part of the building 
particularly the hidden nooks and shadowy corners of its basement, end quote. How's that for some phenomenal foreshadowing? Dude, right? Like, I, I actually got chills when I first read it, and even, like, again now. So, to continue with the foreshadowing, the Department of Agri- Jesus Agriculture? <laughs> this here is de- Sonny from the Department of Agriculture, <laughs> here to inspect your crops, sir. How's that corn growing? Look how pretty it is with all those stalks. You got that Monsanto seed yet, sir? <laughs> <laughs> your corn stalks looking a little short this year. You got to get that Monsanto in them. <laughs> oh, anyway, as I was trying to say, the Department of Agriculture at this point in history had developed an explosive known as pyrotol, which was like had just followed the war. And... Farmers would use this explosive to clear trees because it acted identical to dynamite, but was a fraction of the cost. So the Department of Agriculture dictated that every farmer was eligible to purchase up to 1,000 pounds of this material, which came out to nearly 3,000 sticks total. And Kehoe ended up jumping on the opportunity in the fall of 1925. Things would start to unravel for Kehoe as well in like a few months later in March of 1926, having finished the town clerk's position, which he had a year, uh, which had a year left when, you know, the previous clerk had passed, he assumed that he would just be reelected. However, the party refused to nominate him because of his just general overbearingness. And he suffered another rejection when he decided to run for justice of the peace in 1927 And obviously, ultimately lost, and he lost pretty fucking badly. And, because just fucking Billy Mays, there's more. The misfortune continued to stack because his wife, Nellie, would be hospitalized with an array of symptoms. She had thought that she contracted tuberculosis, but that didn't seem to be the case. And then turmoil would continue to build in Kehoe himself. By this time in the story, he had gone years without making any payments on the farm. So the attorney of the of uh, the estate had decided to take his wife's $500 legacy payment from the estate and apply it to the mortgage. $500. Dude, it's 500 bucks. I'll take I... it. <laughs> like, I, I, like I, I know we're laughing at the comparison because of the inflation, but like... I I'm, know. This is how out of money I am right now because short-term disability doesn't give you shit. <laughs> I am really, really happy that I have a 0% interest rate on my credit cards right now. Oh, my God. What are you buying? Well, uh, it's just just in general, because, like, my insurance hits every month, and then I got utilities, and then I I had to buy um, oil, oil filter, brake pads for the car. Oh. Um, Yeah, it it was just, like, a lot of small maintenance stuff just kind of happened all at once. Yeah. But... Um... Oh, real quick. I'm not financially destitute. That's you know, that's that's a good thing. I didn't think you were financially destitute. <laughs> I was just like, you're fucking crippled right now. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> what are you spending all your money on? <laughs> but oh, actually, so I th- like this has nothing to do with anything. But I'm super fucking stoked about it because I've been waiting to hit this milestone. Mm-hmm. My investment portfolio peaked ten thousand dollars yesterday. Nice. Yeah, I started with thirty five hundred, and it's over ten grand. Wow. I am two-thirds of the way to a car. That's awesome. 
I'm so excited. Uh, I found out something that makes me look like a royal idiot. Well, I mean, it, it make it not look makes me a royal idiot. But you know how I was always saying that my headphones really hurt my ears? Yeah. Yeah. You know why? Were you wearing them like backwards? Yes. Because I did not realize that the little ear pads are angled to fit your ear. So I was wearing them the other way. So they would just be pressing against the top section of my ear the whole time and like kill me. Oh, dude, on it, that does not make you an idiot because I know I've looked at those headphones numerous times and mine say like left, right. Mm-hmm. I could not find that on those. No, there isn't. You just have to follow the curve of it, <laughs> which I didn't never even realize was there. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that does not make you an idiot. But I suggest if you have a Sharpie, write left and right so that it's... Yeah, I should. I actually have a white pen marker right here. Sick. Uh, okay. Actually, I, I meant to tell you, I don't know if you've ever seen the TikToks, but there's there's one. I'll see if I can find a, a copy of the video. But like when you're talking and like waving the pen around, mm-hmm. it reminds me of this very specific anime scene that people just keep spam posting. Oh. <laughs> it's fucking great. Because <laughs> it's like, same same like aesthetic as you just like dressed in all black and like looks nice and she's just like sitting there with her legs crossed and her like one foot is bouncing and she's just like this like <laughs> like waving the pen back and forth <sighs> okay anyways enjoy this in the director's cut episode everybody <laughs> <laughs> oh wow i look so shiny i'm not willy though dude i had that happen earlier like it, like it was like twenty minutes after I put on the moisturizer. I was like, "Why do I look greasy?" Um, maybe she's born with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Holy shit! Okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's so true though. We all do it. <laughs> what? Uh, like, obviously, I can see you on Zoom. I don't know if you can see me, but I saw you, like, slowly tilt your head to one direction and then just super fast go to the other side. <laughs> um, like, okay, this side's greasy. That's it. Oh, damn, it's still greasy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but look at the wall behind me. Even the wall is greasy, so it's just yeah, the light. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he basically never paid any bills. And, you know, the attorney of the estate took the wife's $500 legacy payment and applied it to the mortgage. And guess what that did? That pissed Andrew off. He was very upset that the attorney did not get his permission. Like, fuck off. You have been living on the property for years and haven't made any payments because you're screwing around being... Tim Tinkerman Taylor, and, you know, he was doing that instead of actually farming. Right. And I know that foreclosure was eventually filed as well, and I'm unsure of what exactly happened. Like, the attorney tried to pull the foreclosure from being given, but the sheriff had already delivered it to Kehoe. So then in November 1926, after finally purchasing a truck of his own, Andrew went to Lansing and bought two boxes of dynamite along with blasting caps. Homeboy is clearly working up to something big. Like, he's already got fucking 500 pounds of the pyrotol, and now he's got two more boxes of explosives? Yep, and then the authorities are going to find that in his bedroom, and when they ask his parents about it, they're just going to be like, 
we had no idea our son was into this room. <laughs> <laughs> That's always my favorite. What kind of parents are you? You're not sneaking through your kids' shit every day? (laughs) They have privacy? (gasps) I'm kidding. I think children's privacy is a good thing. I'm just bitter because I didn't have any. (laughs) I feel that. Not allowed to lock the door, and we couldn't close it all the way because this isn't your house. This is my house. All right. Well, you know what? Fine. I know, and I thought I could bypass... My mom's snoopiness by buying like a little fireproof safe from Walmart when I was a kid with the keys and shit. And she used a butter knife to get into it while I was out of the house one day. Wow. Yeah. And she recruited one of my little sisters to help her. And when I like confronted her about it years later, she's like, I never did that. I'm like, really? Because remembers you doing it because you asked her to help. (laughs) Oh, whatever. I was just looking out for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> God. Uh, okay, anyway, this is not my therapy session time. Um, so, yeah, Kehoe got to testing his explosives shortly after um, he acquired them. In January 1927, one of his neighbors named John Slight asked another neighbor about... No, 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 some- job. His name was Job, or Job, or Job. Oh, Job, Job. Yeah. Oh, I totally. Glossed We're getting over biblical that. up in this shit. Job, that's like Arrested <laughs> Development. Gob. He spelled Job. Gob Bluth. It's Job. <laughs> We're having a fire sale. <laughs> that is one of the best shows to ever hit TV. I don't care who wants to. I, I do with enjoy me. that show. I think you actually recommended that one to me. <laughs> the, the writing is just so clever. <laughs> Awful, was... but clever. I was actually kind of sad because I think you got me on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt too, and I I think it lasted like one more season. I was like, oh damn, there's no more to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I feel like the I don't know if it was the last season. Didn't they have like three seasons? I, I yeah, I think it was like three or four. Yeah, very I feel short. like only the first one was any good, but I don't know. All right, I'll probably rewatch it. I've got another like seven eight weeks off work. Yeah, fine. that's fine. <laughs> okay. So yeah, anyway, his neighbor, Job Slate. Yeah, Slight, Job Slate asked another neighbor about some explosions that he had heard on New Year's night. And after talking to Kehoe himself, Kehoe verified that he had set some out and wired it up. Uh, something weird happened with Kehoe's wife, Nellie, too. She got out of the hospital in early May, uh, likely from the incident that Shelby mentioned, and then she stayed with her sister for two weeks to recuperate. And then Kehoe picked her up on Monday, May 16th. Nellie's sister called the following evening to check on her. But Kehoe said that she was at a friend's place, um, a couple named the Vosts, to feel better from being lonely. That's the quote. Feel better from being lonely. <laughs> But her sister had no recollection of Nellie mentioning the Vosts or visiting them or anything like that. Huh. Interesting. And what's even weirder is Kehoe got a call that same Monday from one of the school's teachers. She inquired about using the grove on his property for a picnic on Thursday, but he insisted that they do it on Tuesday, May 17th, quote, I suppose that he wanted the children to have a little fun before he killed them, 
end quote. As it would later... What? Yes. (laughs) Yes. If you had no idea what Kehoe was going to be up to, now you know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and... That 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 quote right there, that was uh, speculation on the part of his neighbor, Monty Ellsworth. Uh, then the fateful day of May 18th would arrive. Nice little picnic on the 17th mm, and a not-so-great day on the 18th. It was the final day of school for more than 250 students in the building when absolute tragedy would strike. Yep, and it was not just at the school. Um, Keo had made many other preparations beforehand. So the day of May 18th started out just as any other day did or would. Um, there were a few things malfunctioning in the school, which, you know, was no big deal. And the students that were set to be in school were all there at 930 in the morning, minus a few absences from either being ill or, um, some of the seniors that were set to graduate or had already graduated, um, as well as some of the youngest kids. So meanwhile, there was a hidden clock ticking away to 9.45 that morning. And while the repairman George Harrington and janitor Frank Smith were working on a broken water pump, a massive explosion went off, sending Harrington flying into the wall behind him, and uh, that explosion ended up shaking Frank down to his knees. So Kehoe had set bombs to explode in the school, which is exactly what they did, right at 9.45. One of the townsfolk, Charles Rawson, recalls seeing, quote, the entire roof of the school's north wing go 10 feet into the air and then collapse, as if it had been picked up and dropped again, end quote. Neighbor uh, Mabel Ellsworth also heard the explosion and saw the dust plume from the school telling her husband that it had been blown up. But her husband had his sights on the Kehoe farm where smoke was pouring out of the barn. Yeah, the that day it was just pure and total chaos. A utility lineman named Oscar Bush saw Kehoe's farm ablaze and went running there to check and see if anyone was in the house. They received no answer and immediately started trying to salvage some of the furniture. Um... Oscar saw a large pile of dynamite in one of the rooms, about 10 to 18 sticks, and immediately removed it without thinking. Other neighbors had also rushed to the farm to help and noticed the dynamite, claiming that it was enough to, quote, blow up the county, end quote. Kehoe had rigged... He's fucking Bane from Batman. Pretty much. Kehoe had rigged his house and all the buildings on the farm to explode. And that is exactly what they did uh, before being consumed by blazing fires. What's even crazier is that Kehoe eventually pulled up wild-eyed, telling everyone to go to the school instead. The entire school and town was in a panic. Many students managed to escape, climbing onto the roof and either jumping to the ground or climbing down ladders that were soon provided at the instruction of Emery. After all the kids had descended... Emery made his way down and over to the telephone office to call everyone, like the fire department, the police, uh, the hospitals, neighboring towns, the state department, and the state police. Jesus, everybody's in on this shit. Like, they weren't fucking around. Yeah, not at all. This, you know, this was a moment when his leadership capabilities, you know, played a crucial role in aiding people to safety. 
he thought incredibly quickly on his feet and potentially saved dozens of kids from harm or, you know, even worse, death. Yeah, seriously. And I know one of the mothers of a third grader was one of the first parents to reach the school. When she arrived, she immediately froze at the grisly sight as as she noticed her daughter dead, hanging down by her legs from a pile of crumbled bricks. That's just that's just awful. I Sorry. Yeah. So another parent, um, someone by the name of C. Chapman, heard his son cry out, I'm alright, father, but get me out of here quick. And by the time by the time Chapman actually got to his son, it was too late. Um, his son had basically been killed by a fall the by a beam that fell. And while I do have the details, I am not going to expose them because it is just fucking horrendous. The entire scene, overall, was anyone's worst possible nightmare. And what's worse, Kehoe's neighbor, Monty Ellsworth, was driving toward his slaughterhouse when he passed Kehoe on... uh... So Monty was heading to the slaughterhouse and Kehoe was en route to town. And they passed each other. So when Monty and Kehoe were even with each other on the road, he could see, quote, Kehoe's face contorted into a ghastly grin, end quote. And Ellsworth even recounted that he could see both rows of Kehoe's teeth and that he would never forget that sight. All in all, while many were fortunately uninjured or only minorly injured, there were a total of 38 children and 6 adults that had died that day, with another 58 people being injured. His bombs at the farm had killed some of the animals there as well, and uh, Kehoe himself was not far behind. This is just horrendous and Kehoe wasn't even done he made his way to the school and called Emery over to his truck when Emery walked up there was an argument between the two of them and then a bit of a struggle some claim that Kehoe had a gun that he fired into the rear of Emery's vehicle or his vehicle I guess his own vehicle others say he simply flipped a switch but regardless of what happened the entire truck went up, and the men went in every direction. Kehoe had rigged his truck with dynamite and pyrotol and committed suicide, taking Emery and several others with him and injuring even more. Um, newspaper, you know, just described the entire incident as his grand satanic gesture, and I, for the life of me, cannot wrap my head around someone just committing an act so heinous and it just seems like without purpose it's just jaw-droppingly awful yeah like all i could gather from it was literally the fact that the school made taxes go up and that's that's what set him off um i do know there is a little bit of a silver lining to the story you know as much as i hate to fucking say it because a school just exploded Um, But upon investigation, there was an additional 500 pounds of pyrotol found at the south end of the school, which hadn't detonated as it like it was supposed to. Kehoe, like to from the investigation, it was discovered that Kehoe planned on demolishing the entire fucking school, killing every single person inside. And as far as his wife being at the Voss, well, she wasn't. He had fucking killed her. And when we say everyone came to help 
like with at the school, we mean everyone. So straight from Schechter's book, it reads, quote, Police and firemen from every nearby community, state troopers, doctors and nurses from the Edward W. Sparrow and St. Lawrence hospitals, employees of various automotive and construction companies rushed from Lansing by bus, Red Cross workers, members of the 119th Division of the U.S. Army, hundreds of students from Michigan State Agricultural College, among them dozens of uniformed ROTC cadets, several troops of Boy Scouts, and others. Within hours, Governor Fred W. Green had arrived with his wife Helen. Stunned by the devastation, the governor stripped off his coat, rolled up his sleeves, and threw himself into the rescue work, while his wife hurried to the grassy knoll to assist the nurses attending to the grievous to the grievously injured children. End quote. Yeah, it was God, that quite, was a mouthful. Yeah. It was like literally everybody during an investigation of the school, as uh, Shelby mentioned, more unignited explosives were found. Um, quote, 300 additional sticks of unexploded pyrotol, 10 burlap sacks of gunpowder, and 204 sticks of Hercules dynamite. End quote. They were all found, wired up, and ready to go. The reason for them not detonating was that any number of things, uh, faulty wiring, bad batteries, a short circuit, etc., you know, you know, all those things happened. But regardless of that, um, the explosives didn't go off, which is great. Yeah, I absolutely wholeheartedly fucking agree. Um, so the entire area itself was just one horror after another. Many of the parents were able to find their children mostly unharmed, but the dead bodies were placed on a knoll not far from the school with blankets covering their bodies. And that's um, the grassy knoll that I mentioned in the previous quote um, that the governor's wife had went to. So, you know, it, it's just as awful as can be in a tragic, monstrous attack like that. Authorities would end up checking Emery's home for explosives of explosives as well, you know, given the hatred that Kehoe had toward him. They also discovered a camouflaged box of pyrotol that Kehoe had shipped to a Mr. Clyde B. Smith. And, uh, so yeah, in, uh, remember how I mentioned that Kehoe ended up killing his wife? Mm -hmm. So, in regard to that, it was a couple days after the incident, but they ended up finding her body in one of the buildings on the farm. And upon investigation of the body, there was evidence of blunt force trauma from a crushed area of her skull. And uh, Keo actually used her body to ignite the flames after dousing it in kerosene. Wow. Yeah. I think uh, his reasoning, too... You know, which is pretty sick, was that she became one of the main causes of their financial strain because she had gone to the hospital for being ill. Um, I personally feel like all of this could have been avoided if he had just ran his farm like any farmer would. Uh, but, you know, he instead spent his days tinkering, trying to find shortcuts that never worked, um, let the land go to waste, never paid bills and got too far behind. And then, you know, came the extra taxes and the hardship that brings. So 
honestly, it was nobody else's fault but his own that they ended up that way. But he took it out on everyone else. And one of the last things they found on the farm was a board fastened to a fence which read, quote, criminals are made, not born, end quote. And that is the only thing I will agree with him on. Yeah. But, you know, there's no forgiving him for taking it out on everyone else. And if anyone made him a criminal, it was himself. Yeah. No, like, I was literally just fucking thinking that. Like, okay, yeah. Like, I, I agree. We, <laughs> bo- we're, we both agree. Criminals are made. But, hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. You, you made yourself. Nobody made you. <laughs> like... Oh, and also, I don't think you mentioned it. Police did end up finding the box that was shipped to Clyde Smith, but turns out there weren't any explosives in it, just records, bonds, some uncashed checks, a ledger, and other treasurer items. In a letter included in the box, Kehoe explained that he was quitting the board and giving the position to Smith. Oh, oh, that's good. I suppose we can chalk that up as one more tiny silver lining to the story overall but how would you like getting your job in that fashion hey guy before you he well, no, just no, no, killed I'm, everybody okay, okay, but if, if he didn't blow up if he didn't blow up the school and he just resigned and he sent all this stuff to the to clyde and clyde is like oh this is pretty fucking dope i got is there any tracking on this i think i might just skip town there's a whole <laughs> lot of checks and boxes <laughs> but i i mean as far as kehoe i'd I rate him just absolute scumbag piece of shit. Like, Jesus. Um, it it would be, uh, what was it? I think two days after the bombing that all of the dead would begin to be buried. Um, and as far as Kehoe, um, his remains were dumped into a graveyard away from everybody else in a remote section of Mount Rest Cemetery. And I I kind of agree with this. The grave has no markings, therefore it cannot be located. And the story would end up making national headlines and nobody could string together any mix of words to describe it. Um, you know, by by the end of the event between the school exploding, Kehoe exploding his truck, there were over 40 people dead in a matter of minutes. I like how the town collectively decided to put him in eternal time out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, go you sit in the corner and think cool about kids. what you've done. <laughs> um, What'd you say? I was like, you can't sit with the cool kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, speaking of headlines and other people finding out about this, donations from all over the state of Michigan poured in. Like nearly everybody that was able to, even including prison inmates, had collectively sent $7,300 to the committee that was set up to rebuild Bath, the town. Um, U.S. Senator James Cousins who made a fortune as an investor in Ford, offered any financial assistance desired. Nearly 85,000 people flocked to the area, uh, a lot of it to see the devastation, you know. From just days later, uh, on May 22nd, and even his neighbor Monty 
found a way to make some money from the tourism. <laughs> he sold small books with a history of the school, an error-riddled account of Kehoe, and a story... <laughs> <laughs> this guy's like, oh, 40 people are dead, town's destroyed, <laughs> let's make some money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we'll just say whatever the fuck we want about Basically, Kehoe, there's no internet to verify. He could have yeah. said he was like a fucking bone-chomping cannibal, and people would have eaten it up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he's selling these books, you know, got a history of the school, um, a less-than-accurate account of Kehoe's life, and even a story from one of the bombing survivors. There was also a poem by a local poet uh, named Mrs. Owen Abbey, which read, uh, quote, Those tiny hands are now at rest. Those rosy cheeks we have caressed. The moist red lips are now so still. The babes we loved and always will. We didn't think when they left home, no more those tiny feet would roam. We didn't think that last goodbye would linger till we met on high. Oh God, it seems too hard to let them go, but still you must want them, we know. We gods will be done, and know they're gone with the setting sun. Help those dear mothers and fathers now so sad, when it seems they've lost everything they had. Cheer them, dear father, in your own way, and show them the light to a brighter day. And when we too will leave this earth, and have a new world hail our birth, they'll be waiting there to welcome us, and say through life, in God we trust. Well, she's not winning any prizes. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> that is oh, terrible. Fuck. What the fuck, dude? Not my comment, that poem. <laughs> Anyways, that, dear listeners, is our story of Andrew Kehoe and the tragedy of Bath, Michigan. We thank you all for joining us for yet another episode, and we hope you have a splendiferous week. If there's any additional information or any corrections that you would like to offer for this episode, please reach out to us at cyspod at gmail.com. Please include your source material and put the episode title in the subject line. Yes, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the handle CYS Podcast. Um, we have officially started posting some pat- platform, not platform, platform exclusive content across Instagram and Twitter. Um, I I may actually end up deleting the Facebook page just because uh, f- Facebook is dying out. It's not hip or cool anymore, um, but. If any of that does end up happening, obviously, you'll all be updated via the other social media pages. Anyways, you can also follow us, uh, me, at Shelbatron underscore one. And you don't have to bother because I don't post. But if you want to, you can follow me, uh, Charlie underscore CYS. (laughs) And lastly, if you enjoy the show, we kindly ask that you consider subscribing to the show's Patreon at patreon.com backslash CYS podcast. Anything and everything is greatly appreciated. It absolutely fucking is. Also, in an effort to try and get Charlie to post more to Instagram, I am going to secretly share her personal email. So just keep an eye out and <laughs> learn how to decode the secret messages that I'm about to come up with out of fucking thin air. So anyways, we'll see you next time, everybody. Stay weird and creepy. Good night.
seems to be a sudden general explosion of mass homicide.